Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the, 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 the drumbeat of hope throughout the book of Colossians that our lives would be so tied up in the story of Jesus that we would describe our lives as in Christ, which is as comprehensive as you can imagine, uh, a relationship that defines every other relationship a story that becomes our story, an experience that becomes our experience. Colossians 3 begins in this place as we have been raised with Christ into new life. It's as if it had happened to us, then we begin to live our lives differently. And so Colossians 3 begins to describe that new life in Christ. And we'll get to that. There's a list of stuff that you saw and you kind of heard and you're thinking, all right, we're going to do this on, uh, on Sunday morning at 9.45. It talks about some stuff and we'll get to that. But take a deep breath. Uh, we're not going to lock the doors and, you know, make people confess their sins and, you know, all, all of that. This is a, a safe place and also a brave place to envision a different future for us and for our world. It means we do talk about things that are important in the vision of a completely different life. Colossians envisions living in Christ, the one in whom all of God's fullness was pleased to dwell. It imagines us also living out of that fullness. Uh, 15 years ago, actually, we preached on the book of Colossians. Uh, we did a Wednesday night series on it, and we called that series In Christ. It took up that idea that we hear in Colossians and Colossians 3 specifically, uh, what it, and envisioned what it would be like to live in Christ. And um, so In Christ was the catchphrase, and I've been around long enough, 15 years, where I remember that we did stuff, but long enough that I don't remember what we, you know, any of the specifics of it, except for one thing. And uh, out of that time... <clears throat> I somehow picked up the habit of writing at the end of my emails th that, that phrase, in Christ, comma, Adam. And, you know, I confess I don't do that all the time. There are some times when, you know, the, the, the sort of the pastoral response needs to be a little extra flextra, so to speak, and I feel like we need to take it up a notch. Sometimes I just uh, sign off my emails, uh, all the best, comma, Adam. Sometimes I sign my name and sometimes I don't and I get confused and some of you young people can help because I do sign my emails even though you know who it's coming from and sometimes I still sign my texts, you know, but I, I've learned young people that that's redundant. Like I remember actually I'm thinking of somebody sitting out here. I, I sent them a text and said, hey, da, 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 Pastor Adam and they texted back. Yes, I'll do that. And yes, I know who you are. My daughter reminds me often that, that, that you don't have to, you're not supposed to sign their text. Are you supposed to sign an email? How many of you sign emails? I'm just curious. Okay, so I, I, I feel justified in this. In Christ is one that I will use when there's a need uh, to kind of remind ourselves of that fullness of life that is possible over a specific situation. This last week, I got one of those, e an email from someone who, and it needed a pastoral response. It needed me to kind of, very carefully choose my words over a situation in their family and they were, you know, some, some stuff they're struggling with and they had emailed and, 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 and reached out to me. So I sent the email and reached back out to them. And at the end of it, I thought, you know, this is one of those in Christ emails, right? So very carefully chosen pastoral words, carefully chosen ending salutation, whatever it's called to the end of the, at the email in Christ, Adam. And just as I was about to hit send, I noticed that it had auto-corrected. 
Instead of in Christ, Adam, it said, I'm Christ, Adam. (laughs) Fortunately, I caught it before I hit send. Can you imagine getting that email from me and being like, whoa, Pastor Adam is really feeling kind of big for his britches these days. I'm I'm Christ, Adam. my computer has gotten a little confused about things. And, and, you know, all joking aside, Colossians wants us to help make that switch. Like, you know, the saying uh, someone has said, I've learned two things in life. There is a God and I'm not him. And Colossians wants us to make this shift in our allegiances from the ones that are grounded in our own way of encountering the world, which is limited and often fearful and anxious, And to a different place in Christ draws on all the sufficiency, the one in whom all of God's fullness was pleased to dwell. Now is our lived reality. And what we love about Colossians, we've been saying through this series, is it goes up into the clouds. It goes up into the cosmos. It goes up into the universe and and thinks of the work of Christ in the most expansive way possible. But it refuses to stay there. It keeps bringing us right back down to the ground and in envisioning a life that looks that full, when we tend to come at life with our blinders on from an earthly perspective, and Colossians 3 talks about that perspective a couple times, Colossians invites us to see it differently. There's also a little tension in the New Testament that if you come at uh, life this way, and and say all that's required is to live into this fullness of Christ and in relationship to Jesus, that if you throw out the rules-based approach and take a relationship-based approach, that in some way you're lowering your standards. Colossians 3 is written because there's anxiety in the system that the, the people are going to kind of settle for something less. And Colossians 2 ends, as we saw last week and on Wednesday night, it ends in this place of throwing out of that, that human-based rules approach to religion. But maybe you've heard this, maybe you've felt it, there's a little concern that, well, if you, if you take that approach off the table, then it's sort of just lowering your standards, sort of trying to make it easy. And so as you flip the page between Colossians 2 to Colossians 3, it begins to answer that. If you think that a relationship-based approach to religion lowers the standards, you're going to discover something different. In fact, if we live in Christ, then very naturally and very immediately we begin to exchange some things, some empty things for fuller things. We begin to begin to leave things behind so that we can take up other things. And this is the work of God in us. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. It is not inevitable, but it's something that God initiates and that we can either lean into or not. And this is the starting point of Colossians 3. It is a vision of living into the resurrection reality of Jesus. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. So with our blinders on. You died, for, your, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So let's talk about the things that get exchanged here uh, as we think about our our life in Christ. No longer I'm Christ, but now in Christ. And the first exchange is this. I think we exchange hurried hearts, taking right out of the scripture, 
for hope-filled thoughts. This is a three-point sermon, by the way. I don't always do three-point sermons. So if you like those and you like to take notes and kind of reflect on them with carefully chosen words, we exchange hurried hearts for hope-filled thoughts. A couple weeks ago, some of our pastors spent a day at Camp Lucon with some other pastors and staff from First United Methodist Church Lexington, and we're similar churches, and uh, we just got together and said, what actually helps people follow Jesus? What are you doing? What are we doing? What are we learning? What doesn't work? We spent a whole day in a very practical conversation with them. It's very encouraging to find people who are in it with you, and um, we don't always take time for that. So we had a great day. We began the day... uh, in a devotion time, and it was a church meeting. So we're going to talk about Jesus and try to ground our lives and the, the, uh, our, our, our talk in that spiritual reality. And uh, since we're been, we've been preaching in Colossians 3, a few weeks ago, in fact, I, I kind of stumbled on something. And it was a point in the sermon that this word fullness in Colossians is actually used in John. It's used in Ephesians. And it speaks to this grace upon grace. You may remember that part of the sermon, the fullness upon fullness, fullness to overflowing, that's throughout the old, I mean, the New Testament, trying to describe this life in Christ. So we spent some time there, and I sent people to groups of pairs to talk about two questions. And the first question was, what does fullness in Christ mean? What does that look like? And we talked about some practical things, but I hadn't realized uh, that I would get some metaphors. And three people used a metaphor to describe what fullness in Christ looks like. I wish I had asked the question before that sermon a few weeks ago. I would have used those metaphors, or I'll use them today, because the first one was the person said, you know what? It feels, it makes me think of Thanksgiving Day. You know, there's like this special kind of feeling that you get. Now, this is probably after the first meal, but before the second one, you know, like when you stuff yourself to the point of being sick, that's not fullness. But when you, you, you eat and your family's together and you're grateful and then the tryptophan kicks in from the turkey, and you're maybe sitting down to watch football, and it just, like, there's a peace, full. You're just full. And someone said, well, when I hear fullness or grace upon grace, I think of March Madness. This is a group of people from First Church Lexington. So, you know, basketball, Jesus, you know. So I think of March Madness, basketball upon basketball, games upon games, you know, excitement upon excitement. I feel like that, that, that probably makes sense too. We went around the circle a little ways and then the third person said, you know, I'm a nurse and I work with people on respirators a lot. And uh, one of the issues that we deal with is people have a diminished lung capacity. So one of the things that we will do is expand their lung capacity and so that they can get more oxygen. And it feels to me like that's what Jesus is doing for us. He's expanding our capacity to be human, to love, to experience life. We start here, and he's going to push that fuller. Isn't that great? And so that was the first question. The second question pertains to the sermon today. Well, what keeps us from that fullness? And we had a good discussion about it. It's very practical as we look at what people are dealing with in their lives and the kinds of obstacles and traps and sin or struggle that becomes a challenge to that fullness. And, um, and yet the first thing that someone said just almost immediately, what keeps people from experiencing Christ's fullness? Someone said, I think it's because we just have no margin. That, that maybe say, <clears throat> saying in another way, it's not just that we're busy, 
But it's that we put the Jesus thing into the mix of all the other things. And we're like, we're going to try to work our faith in as one of many different levers that we're pulling to try to have a full life instead of letting Christ be all in all, as Colossians 3 says, and then living out of that fullness in every other aspect of life. That we feel like we have to fill the hole still somehow. Like there's not enough. And so we, we're anxious, we're active. We do what we do because we feel like there's some kind of relational brokenness that still needs to be filled. And we're still making up for some, some relationship lack or some kind of sense of purpose that is needed. But Colossians envisions exchanging anxious and hurried hearts for minds that are at peace. And I don't know if we can really imagine fully what that is like to live from that place of what we've been calling Christ's cosmic enoughness. Living from the starting place that what, what is needed has already been accomplished and then we're just we're just expanding our capacity to receive it in some way. Rather than running around anxious, trying to appease God, trying to deal with the cosmic forces, which is a part of the um, context of Colossians, and setting our minds there, our perspective there, rather than our blind, having our blinders on from an earthly perspective. Now, I need to feel like there's a point of correction here. When we read, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, sometimes that has been translated out of context. And what we've heard, what we've been told, what has been preached, I think is wrong. Uh, and I want to be careful there because I get things wrong too. But I think, I think this is a, a fairly big, big one where what we hear in that is set your mind on things above and so ignore earthly things. So, and and, be, and, and they're, they're just, they don't matter somehow. Like our bodies, they don't really matter. Or the, the planet and taking care of our planet doesn't matter. And that's just taking these, this scripture out of context. It's not what it's trying to say. What it's trying to say, and it really literally means having a perspective from like in the soil, like seeing things just from where we see them, earthly things and an earthly perspective is so limited. And unless we raise our hearts and our minds and our thinking up and look up, we're, we're never going to see the fuller story. We're going to get confused and we're going to make our decisions from the wrong place. Does that make sense? We're going to feel lack and so then act out of lack. We're going to feel anxious and then act out of anxiety. We're going to be fearful in some way and act out of fear. The, the story is Christ coming to earth, not rejecting it, but bringing his fullness to it. And that's the vision. And it's so important because I think we need to know that is the vision. Colossians thinks it's not only that we need to know that Christ is enough. We need to embody that. We need to live it. And so that's point one. Having, having died and being raised with Christ, we are called to exchange our hurried thoughts. We are also called to exchange our harmful actions. And Colossians gets real about that. Exchange our harmful actions for holy interactions. There again is the positive vision. What it would be like to live into the fullness of Christ in our relationships with each other, knowing full well that we don't always get along, knowing full well that we hurt each other and people hurt us and we act out of that place. <clears throat> 
So the language is strong. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to that earthly nature, that perspective where we treat each other with our blinders on sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life that you once lived. You hear that metaphor carrying through. We've been brought out of one life and raised with Christ to another, and our lives are now hidden in Christ in that place, and that's how we act now. See how practical it gets? That's how we treat each other, from that place, not from all of our broken places. Not saying, well, this is just how I am, or I haven't dealt with it yet, and so this is just what you get. That is never our starting place. The point of this part of the passage is this. Living in Christ means our relationship with Christ redefines every other relationship. It's a walking into his fullness. And this positive vision uh, for for life in Christ, our, our, our ethics are found. We don't have a list of rules that you would follow that make us right with God or get us to that fullness. No, we live into the thing that Christ has already done. So, uh, but a lot of religion is about this list of things you're not supposed to do, right? I remember a youth one time, several years ago, they're having a conversation about religion and they said, you know, like, well, tell me what it means to follow Jesus. And they went immediately to the things that we don't do because that's generally kind of our starting point. And they said, well, it's like, you don't do these things, cussing and smoking and drinking. Like we, we, we have a list, right, of the things that, that we know we're not supposed to do. But Colossians 3 gives us the things that we're not supposed to do in a vision of the fuller thing that Christ wants for us. Again, if we think relationship approach to religion lowers the standard, it does not. It elevates it. It elevates every human interaction into the possibility of Christ. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but next week, Uh, the rest of Colossians 3 begins to describe that positive vision of life together in community. And that that passage, next week's sermon, will end with this, this scripture, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So to put it clearly, if we can't do it in the name of Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father along the way, then we are taking something that's intended for good and using it for harm. And we need to be honest about it. We're taking something like money or sex or people, a God's good gift, and we're abusing it in some way. But what if we transformed our thinking about all of those things? Sex isn't bad. It's an opportunity to live into the fullness of intimate relationship with someone in the way of Christ. And money begins a, becomes a, ch- a chance to live into God's generosity and God's abundance, and we can use our resources to live into that fullness. And what if our interactions in community became more like that? That is our vision of church. Having died with Christ and being raised with him, we're called to exchange our hurried thoughts and our harmful behaviors, and finally, we are called to exchange our hurtful talk. I don't see how this applies today, 
at all. We don't ever use words to hurt each other, but since it's in the Bible, maybe we should talk about it. Now that you have also must rid yourselves of all, that was a joke, nobody laughed, it's okay. Now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Okay, we're all guilty. Do not lie to each other since you've been take, have taken off your old self with its old practices. There the image carries forth and put on a new self which is being renewed. It is a process and knowledge in the image of its creator. Our words are important. We all know the saying, sticks and stones may break our bones, but, and you don't believe it, or you would have said it louder, right? It's not true. Pastor Laura does a little group on Thursdays with people ahead of the sermon on Sunday. We talk about things on Thursday morning, and then she goes right to lunch. They call it tacos and theology. Someone accidentally in our staff keeps calling it tacos and tequila. I, don't, I haven't been, so I don't know what is happening there. But they, they talk about the scripture of the day. And they ask, well, if it's not sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, what, what is it? And somebody said... Well, sticks and stones may, well, may break my bones, but words can really hurt me. And another person said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will infect my mind. And then someone else said, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can make me think I deserved it. The Bible talks about our words honestly. Proverbs 18 says that our words have the power of life and of death. And Colossians calls us to the fullness of life. That means even the way we talk to each other becomes a means of experiencing Christ's fullness, using and empowering and harnessing the power of our words to give life. Can you imagine a group of people like us gathered here taking even just this vision of the fullness of life in Christ seriously? Can you imagine us harnessing the power of our words praying before we say something, bringing words of healing and hope into situations that are anxious and fearful in our very real, very human lives. You know, in the life of Jesus, some people were leaving his ministry and um, no longer following him. Jesus turned to his disciples and said, so are you going to leave too? Do you remember what he sa they said to him? They said, Lord, where would we go? Because you have the very words of life. I think Colossians would, would extend that story into those of us who are in Christ. That our, our speech itself became, becomes an encounter with God, the very words of life. There can be no rule for this kind of exchange. It has to be a full-on embodiment of the story. We become those who are in Christ, not I'm Christ, but living into the process of transformation of being in Christ. And, and in that way, the possibilities are endless, literally endless, as we exchange hurtful thoughts, hurried thoughts, harmful actions, and hurtful words, for the outworking of an infinite grace, a living into the cosmic enoughness of Jesus. And so before we come to communion today, I'm going to invite you to reflect a little bit 
about your week past. And this is a safe place and a brave place to come into God's presence and to reflect on the possibility that he has for our lives in Christ. And for the ways that we don't live into it, none of us. It doesn't diminish the vision one bit. We come week in and week out to be reminded. So let's reflect together as we pray. And as, uh, as we come into God's presence, we, we ask first, what is getting in the way of Christ's fullness in our lives? The question that we discussed a few weeks ago at Lucon. What is that thing that is getting in the way? Is it something in our thinking? Is it something in our acting? Is it, or is it something in our speaking? Something that we feel maybe we don't have control over or a pattern or a habit or a way of relating to one another that keeps kind of rearing its head. Something other than the fullness of Christ. Then as you hear the scripture, and you think about that exchange that Christ is working in us, what is, what is it that we're exchanging that emptier thing for? What is the fuller thing? Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. How, you might, how might you change your perspective? Set your mind not, setting your mind not on things that are earthly, but on things above. What's, what's the exchange? What's the fuller thing? For in Christ you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So that when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. And what's, what's the thing that you think will change this week and the week ahead? Or what is the way you will encounter a situation that's coming, a circumstance, a challenge? What, might, what one little thing might be different if you kept that perspective.